0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Howard Norman, three-time winner of National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships and winner of the Lannan Award for Fiction. His novels, The Bird Artist and The Northern Lights, were nominated for National Book Awards. His most recent work is a memoir called I Hate to Leave This Beautiful Place. It's told in five sections and includes incidents from his life, including working in a bookmobile in Michigan, his first love and her subsequent death in a plane crash, his relationship to a band obsessed with John Lennon in northern Canada, where he was working translating Inuit folk tales, and the murder-suicide of a mother and young son who were living in his home for the summer. I began the interview by asking him about the title of the book.
1: Well, the title, of course, is "I Hate to Leave This Beautiful Place," and I think it's it's a memoir in a way. It's five sort of overlapping panels of memory, five different incidents, and the places one uh, goes to to think those incidents through. So it's a it's a book primarily about landscape and memory. And I noticed one rather uncanny thing is that while writing it, I discovered the origin of the obsessions and preoccupations of many of my fictional characters. And I think the same holds true in a sense uh, with the title that is oftentimes leaving Vermont, leaving Point Reyes, California, leaving Nova Scotia. uh, A kind of refrain is, I really hate to leave this place. But that led me to think back to a time in the Arctic when I was working for various organizations to collect and transcribe folktales. I translated and transcribed and translated a story whose provisional title was I Hate to Leave This Beautiful Place about a man who was transformed by a quite malevolent angakak, or a shaman, into a goose, and he the goose realizes that unless he migrates south, he will die. But the lament he shouts repetitively out over this echoing landscape of the Arctic was, in fact, I hate to leave this beautiful place. And so, retrospectively, that seemed to apply with great immediacy. To the book I was writing.
0: Yeah, I think there's something really haunting about it.
1: Well, certainly for me, because, I mean, haunting, I think, means it sets up, to me it means it sets kind of permanent insistence in your emotions, so that if you are just sort of walking along in daily life, and suddenly this thing, comes to you it is a ghostly voice it's a it's a it's not a mystical thing or a, or a. perhaps you don't want to elevate it to a level of theological regard perhaps but it just happens because um and i often hear that uh that title that uh sentiment i often feel it um very strongly the the thing is, it's a kind of epitaph, and if it doesn't contain, directly contain elegy, it contains a kind of elegiac anticipation. You know, you if you were told you were going to die, uh, you would then look around at your life and decide whether you hated to leave this place or not. So I think by almost by uh, definition.
0: Well, you mentioned that when you were writing it, you sort of discovered some of the motivations and characteristics of your fictional characters. Yes. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: I think it underscores the fact that if you, were, if you had too much of a predisposition, I should only speak for myself here, toward the psychological or emotional dimensions of writing a book, you pro- I probably wouldn't go ahead with it. I mean, you want to write in order to discover what you think to come to some knowledge of yourself. So if you, if you knew all these things ahead of time, why, why write it? So looking back, I can see, well, oh goodness, that's why most of my female protagonists or antagonists or love interests have dark red hair. Or that's why so many of my characters are half-orphaned, because my father left so early. This is a little bit of armchair psychologizing, I realize that, But I don't quite have the vocabulary, but it's revelations, if you will, or insights you have into the kind of repetitive things that happen uh, novel after novel after novel that have a source, perhaps, or are sponsored by something that happened to you early on in your life and just keeps manifesting itself and transmuting itself in various incarnations through the lives and behaviors of your fictional characters.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Howard Norman, author of I Hate to Leave This Beautiful Place.
1: Well, I hadn't had any intention, or at least I hadn't formalized any intention. You know, I, I should say right from the get-go that I, I'm... i um, This is the first time of talking so much about my writing and certainly about, I'm trying to avoid any sense of solipsism because it's kind of awkward. You write something, it doesn't mean you necessarily feel comfortable talking about yourself. But having said that, I I didn't have any real intention, you know, of writing this, except that one time I was walking with um, an old friend of mine Uh, William Merwin, the poet, and we started talking about his uh, prose, about his life in France uh, back in the 1940s and 50s, and he said, you know, Howard, over the years I've heard various stories and I know various things about you. Uh, Don't you think it's time, or, or do you think it's time to kind of put those in a book? And um, I guess it probably was, I don't want to blame him for this, but I think it was probably uh, what I needed to hear. And even in my mid-50s when I started this, or late 50s, I realized um, I just needed a little encouragement. So uh, I wrote, oh, I guess 9 or 10 or 11 extended episodes or chapters And then when I looked at them very closely, I thought the one unifying element was that they all involved landscape, or the ones I wanted to keep rather involved landscape as a place to try to figure out what had just happened, you know, that that there was these events and then you, you try to go to a place, or why do you return to the same place again and again and again, as a kind of introspective landscape. And so... Some of the sections didn't really fit into that because I needed some organizing principle for this book. Uh, Otherwise, it would have seemed, at least to me, to be too ad hoc, too severely associational. And so it was an editing process that I think most, most every writer goes through on some level.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Howard Norman, author of I Hate to Leave This Beautiful Place. I'm curious about your early experiences writing as a kid.
1: I mean, I never took a writing class as a kid, but I was in English classes in which there were writing assignments. And those writing assignments really stuck with me. Uh, When my when my mother, before my mother passed away, she sent a box full of journals and notebooks I'd kept, you know, in fifth and sixth grade. You know, they were just on old blue exam notebooks. And I just sort of left them around my farmhouse here in Vermont. And, and then one day I decided to look at them. And to my great surprise, and truly, truly, I was stunned. They consisted almost exclusively of marriage proposals. I I had proposed marriage to all the girls in the sixth grade class. I guess I was attracted to older women when I was in fourth grade. The teachers, I proposed to, uh, in a way, in a, in a kind of odd way, I proposed to my closest friend, Paul. It I was just a, a form of of that I had, was obviously enamored of at the time, but I had completely forgotten it. So I think if you moved from school to school as much as I did, you know, I went to four different elementary schools, and there's no violins here accompanying that statement. It's just what our situation was. Uh, you have to find a social life, and sometimes a social life is with yourself moving inwardly, and the thing that struck me about this marriage proposals is that, is that because if you didn't give them to people, you imposed on yourself uh, a condition of unrequited love, because no one would even know how to re- to respond to it. And I think that, without sounding too academic, that in a way... I think that that gets played out in a lot of my fictional characters. The privateness of desire as opposed to desire that's always on high public exhibit.
0: And what about the role of letter writing in your life? Um, interesting. Huge. Yeah, it's interesting when you were young, you wrote letters to your friends' dads.
1: I still write a lot of handwritten letters. I write Oh, maybe thirty or forty letters a week, or type them. I love to read letters. I'm reading um, Robert Louis Stevenson. You know, like eighteen volumes of his letters came out. It, there's something about the conscious act of figuring out not just what will be important for the moment, as in an email, but what will be important in the in you know still be important if a letter would take twelve weeks to get to somebody. So I do think about letters a lot. I think about um, the disappearance of epistolary lives. I'm hardly the only one. I don't think it's even generational. You know, my daughter told me she she's 25 now, and she told me the other day that the sound of a manual typewriter was the sound of her childhood. And I think that these things are mnemonic. I think they register very deeply. And um, letter writing certainly is uh, part of that for me.
0: Do you find it healing? I mean, in your book, you wrote, you know, your father was gone and you were writing letters to your friend's fathers, sort of pointing out maybe the areas where they might have failed their sons. And then you wrote a lot.
1: they there's surrogate conversations with an absent father, of course.
0: Yes. And then you, you write a lot of letters after... Um, there was that murder-suicide in your home to friends. So is that a healing activity for you as well?
1: You may not believe this, but this is the first time I ever... You just made a connection that I never had. I never connected the writing of letters to those fathers with the ones later on for for probably a couple reasons. One, I write so many letters that it it seems like I'm always doing it. But secondly... um, no, I wouldn't say healing, but I think letters make things a little better than they would otherwise be. I don't think that the things that are most profound, profoundly suffered by people—you, me, anyone—are ever really fully healed. I think a cut on your finger can be healed, but I don't think that the deeper currents of loss or sadness or melancholy or anything is really can be healed. I, I just I I I. I resist that
0: notion. In, yeah. in this book, your girlfriend dies when you're very young in a plane accident, and then you had this horrible incident happen at your home in Maryland. And so I'm wondering about the process of mourning. I mean, it's clear in your book that part of that is seems like solitude and birds and the natural world. Uh, what is mourning for you, and do you think mourning accomplishes something?
1: By all means do I. I think it's almost a pan-cultural phenomenon. I saw mourning processes in the Arctic very close up. If you'll allow me a distinction, when Matilda, uh, the woman in Halifax, died, there were a number of elements there. One is I, I already had had the, the incipient feeling that the relationship was ending, ever she might have felt but uh i was very very sad because um i was working under the assumption that there is just one love of your life and so when you fall in love you you sort of have to be operating under the assumption that this will potentially be the love of your life well she wasn't uh but part of my sadness when she she died in a plane crash, was that um, I might not ever meet somebody who would be that. And that out not to be true, but at the time I didn't know that. So I suppose there was a, what I tried to describe in that chapter, and I hope to some degree of success, was the sort of, how do I say it, makeshift attempt to properly find out just how sad I was. And did I even know how to mourn this situation? I'm not sure that mourning comes naturally. I think sometimes you have to investigate it as a phenomenon. As opposed to what happened in the House in Washington, I didn't feel a moment of mourning for uh, Ritika Vazirani. I didn't know her. She was not a friend. I refused to, ab- to generalize a sense of mourning. I find it so intimate that it should only apply to people you love. And that just did not apply. And I, I hope that doesn't reflect too badly on me, but I am just being honest with you. Uh, no, I felt a deep sense of concern for my family, and I felt a deep sense of violation. And yes, anger, which I tried to express working out in the, that particular chapter. But mourning, no. If there was any even glancing sense of mourning, it was for that little boy that she so brutally murdered. I felt so sad and so astonished that someone was actually capable of doing that, that it probably had elements of mourning, but it certainly, I don't think, meets my own. Uh, definition of it. I think my own definition of it would only apply to uh, people I know and love.
0: So tell me a little bit about your relationship to language and how that might have changed when you started translation work. I would imagine, I've never translated, but that it makes you look at your own language in a new way. And I'm, I'm curious about your experience of that and how that influenced or changed, um, or just affected your writing?
1: When I first went to the Arctic, when I first started working with translation, I had a very, very bad stammer. I'm sure it's noticeable in my voice. um, And I often have to preface my writing workshops or classes by telling the students that they're going to experience a rather odd cadence. And the cadence of my voice rushing a number of words through and then pauses is not because I'm contemplative, (laughs) particularly, but because it's a 50-year compensation for a kind of stammering. When I first started working with Inuit, uh, the process of translation made me focus so intensely on trying to find equivalents in my own language, which, after all, is what translation should be about, is trying to find equivalents instead of substitutes in your own language. Uh, the, the stammering really um, started to dissipate. And it wasn't magical. It was very logical. That is, I was in a context in which my obligations were to two languages at once. And I think there was almost um, an ethical element to it. I wasn't quite articulating at the time, but when I look back, uh, and I think, yes, indeed, uh, definitely, definitely, um, the element of hearing a world, a cosmology, hearing emotions defined in another language, and trying to really understand in a sense, how different these people thought than I thought. Certainly um, created, for lack of a better way to put it, a sense of empathy that I try, in some sense, to access when I'm writing fictional characters who are nothing like I am. So you try to figure out how they think and what their motivations are. And I think a lot of that was born of necessity to do that, to try to construct a good um, translation. I don't want to overstate that, though. I I mean, the first novel I ever wrote, which will never see the light of day, was essentially a recapitulation of a bunch of folktales. And I knew it was an apprenticeship. I knew it was something that was going to be jettisoned. But I knew I had to do that in order to distance myself from those deep structures of, of folklore that I had been working with. But as you can see from this memoir, the situation of translating those stories, the framework, the context, is still very much with me.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Howard Norman, author of I Hate to Leave This Beautiful Place. Can you share a passage from another author that spoke to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: This is the first uh, paragraph. Of The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. A story has no beginning or end. Arbitrarily, one chooses that moment of experience from which to look back or from which to look ahead. I say, one chooses, with the inaccurate pride of a professional writer who, when he has been seriously noted at all, has been praised for his technical ability. But do I, in fact, of my own will, choose that black, wet, January night on the common in 1946, the sight of Henry Miles slanting across the wide river of rain. Or did these images choose me? It is convenient, it is correct according to the rules of my craft to begin just there. But if I had believed then in a God, I could also have believed in a hand plucking at my elbow a suggestion. Speak to him. He hasn't seen you yet.
0: And so tell me about your choice of this passage in this book.
1: Well, it starts off in a non academic way, a kind of treatise about inspiration, but then it suddenly segues into an actual, very, very graphic, clear image. So it moves from the kind of ethereal to the quotidian, all within two or three sentences. And At the end, it being Graham Greene, he introduces the existential element of his, in his case, his Catholicism, but in a certain announcement that there is a deeper turbulence, much deeper than a rainstorm, or much deeper than, should I stop and say hello to someone I know, that um, sets up a preoccupation in the reader's mind that he's a person who's tormented by his belief or lack of belief, or the tug-of-war between those two things in his soul. I know that that paragraph was rewritten and rewritten and rewritten, but it seems in its final manifestation to kind of set a very, very uh, tough and beautiful precedent uh, for the rest of the book. It, It introduces a whole bunch of themes, if you will, in one paragraph.
0: Can you share something that you wrote that you found tricky to write or that you rewrote a lot or something that you feel like you succeeded at?
1: It's rare one is asked, and I appreciate it. But I think it would be the first paragraph of a novel that I wrote back in the 1990s called The Bird Artist. And the first paragraph is, My name is Fabian Voss. I live in Whitless Bay, Newfoundland. You would not have heard of me. Obscurity is not necessarily failure, though. I am a bird artist and have more or less made a living at it. Yet I murdered the lighthouse keeper, Botho August, and that is an equal part of how I think of myself. So I think it's probably pretty easy to
0: see the relationship between those two, that it's personal, but it forecasts some of the plot. And was that tough to get that just the way you wanted?
1: Oh, yeah. Sure. But but tough compared to what? I mean, it all paragraphs are like that, finally. I, I have never had a paragraph that just sort of came out whole cloth the first time. It's just not the the kind of writing process I've ever experienced.
0: So where do you write?
1: In Vermont, I write in a little cabin that's about... 60 yards from my farmhouse. It, it, it overlooks a nice valley, and I see a lot of bird life out there and so forth. And uh, I usually write from about 5 to about 9 in the morning. And after that, whatever else the day brings.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I mean, I never want to get away from it. I, I might refine that question a little or, or change it and say that a place like Point Reyes, National Seashore, I've gone there for well over 40 years, in, in a sense, in order to get back to writing. So you sort of go out and, and look at birds, and I walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. And usually that's when something I've been thinking about either gets rejected or confirmed as a possibility for a book. So I think it's more where, in my case, it's more where do I go in order to get back to writing. And my answer would probably be Northern California.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: My literary agent, Melanie Jackson.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: In one level, you know, if you're really hard on yourself with your own writing, if you if you constantly are trying to up the ante and um, write, well, things people say, let's say, a book reviewer or somebody really kind of finally glances off you because you've already been so hard on yourself something that is said that only lasts for a single day cannot possibly you know have the same dimensions as how hard you've been on yourself in order to finish a book i guess i don't really even think about it unless it's somebody i'm very very close with and whose opinion means the world to me, I I don't much think about it. What good would it do? Your book is done.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Of late, it's unrequited. I read this passage, I think it was from Anna Freud, I I think, and it just made me laugh so hard. It was, all love is unrequited, even self-love. And I thought, I've got to think a lot about that word so i think my favorite word is the word i'm trying to think about a lot
0: you've been listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at aspen public radio my guest was howard norman author of i hate to leave this beautiful place you can follow first draft on facebook just look for first draft a dialogue on writing and click like and on twitter at first draft apr you can email me at first at gmail.com The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.